Chapter Twenty Six of Murder at Bridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Carl, St. Louis, Missouri, October two thousand seven. Murder at Bridge by Anne Austin. Chapter Twenty Six. With a sharp exclamation of excitement and triumph, Dundee read Penny's telegram. Hamilton Evening Sun, date of May 5, 1922, published story of suicide, Anita Lee, artist's model, but picture accompanying was undoubtedly Nita Lee Salim's. Stop. No correction followed. Stop. What does it mean? What does it mean? Dundee repeated exultantly to himself. It means, my darling little Penny, that anyone in Hamilton who had any interest in the matter believed Nita Lee Selim was dead, and thought the spelling of her name was wrong, not the picture itself. The question is, who read that story and gazed on that picture with exquisite relief? Two hours before, he had dismissed as impossible or highly impractical his impulse to investigate the eleven-year-old scandal on Flora Hackett, who was now Flora Miles, as told him by Gladys Earle of the Foresight School. Even more difficult it would be to find out why Janet Raymond's mother had taken her abroad for a year. Of course, he had ruefully told himself, Nita Lee might have been lucky or unlucky enough to run across documentary proof of one of the scandals of which Gladys Earle had told her, or had dared to blackmail her victim by dark hints, as Miss Earle had unconsciously suggested to her. But this new development could not be ignored. A picture of Nita Lee as a suicide had appeared eight years ago in a Hamilton paper, and the paper had either remained unaware of the error, or had thought it not worth the space for a correction. Eight years ago. Eight years ago, in June, three weddings had occurred in Hamilton, the Dunlop, the Miles, the Drake wedding. And within the last year and a half, Judge Marshall, after proposing season after season to the most popular debutante, had married lovely little Karen Plummer. Suddenly, a sentence from Ralph Hammond's story of his engagement to Nita Lee Selim popped up in Dundee's memory. And once I got cold-sick because I thought she might still be married, but she said her husband had married again, and I wasn't to ask questions or worry about him. If Ralph Hammond had reported Nita accurately, she had not said she was divorced. She had merely said her husband was married again. Why was Ralph to ask no questions? Divorced wives were not usually so reticent. Had Nita planned to commit the crime of bigamy? If not, when and where and how had she secured a divorce? To Serena Hart, years before, she had denied any intention of getting a divorce, for two reasons. Because she did not know where her husband was, and because being married, although husbandless, was a protection against matrimonial temptations. To Gladys Earle, a year ago in April, she had confided that she could not marry again because she was not divorced and because she did not know the whereabouts of her husband. And so far as New York reporters had been able to find out, Nita Lee had done nothing to alter her status as a married woman during the past year. Moreover, if Nita had secured either a divorce or a legal separation, her faithful and beloved maid, Lydia Carr, would certainly have known of it. 
and Lydia had vehemently protested more than once to Bonnie Dundee that she knew nothing of Nina's husband, although she had worked for the musical comedy dancer for five years. Surely, if Nita, loving and trusting Lydia as she did, had entered into negotiations of any kind with or concerning her husband during the last year, her maid would have been the first to know of them. And yet... Suddenly Dundee jumped to his feet and began to pace the floor of his hotel bedroom. He was remembering the belated confidence that John C. Drake, banker, had made to him the morning before, after the discovery of Dexter Sprague's murder. He recalled Drake's reluctant statement almost word for word. About that ten thousand which Nita deposited with our bank, Dundee, when she made the first deposit of five thousand on April 28th, she explained it with an embarrassed laugh as back alimony, an installment of which she had succeeded in collecting from her former husband. And, naturally, when she made the second deposit on May 5th, I presumed the same explanation covered that sum, too, though I confess I was puzzled by the fact that both big deposits had been made in cash. In cash! Had Nita, by any chance, been telling a near truth? Had she been blackmailing her own husband, a husband who had dared marry again, believing his deserted wife to be dead, and justifying herself by calling it back alimony? But wasn't it, in reality, no matter what coercion Nita had used in getting the money, exactly that? Back alimony, and the price of her silence before the world and the wife who was not really a wife. In a new light, Bonnie Dundee studied the character of the woman who had been murdered, possibly to make her silence eternal. Lois Dunlop had liked, even loved her. The other women and girls of the crowd, that exclusive, self-centered clique of Hamilton's most socially prominent women, must have liked her fairly well and found her congenial, in spite of their jealousy of her popularity with the men of the crowd, or they would not have tolerated her, regardless of Lois Dunlop's championship of her protégé. Gladys Earle had found her the sweetest, kindest, most generous person I ever met. Gladys Earle, who envied and hated all girls who were more fortunate than she. Serena Hart, former member of New York's Junior League and still listed in the social register, had found her the only congenial member of the chorus she had invaded as the first step toward stardom. And Serena Hart had the reputation of being a woman of character and judgment, a kind and wise and great woman. Finally, Ralph Hammond had loved Nita and wanted to marry her. Was it possible that Nita Salim's only crime into which she had been led by her infatuation for Dexter Sprague had been to demand, secretly, financial compensation from a husband who had married and deserted her, a husband who, believing her dead, had married again? But who was the man whose picture, to spin a new theory, Nita had recognized as that of her husband among the male members of the cast of the Beggar's Opera, when Lois Dunlop had proudly exhibited the stills of that amateur performance? With excitement hammering at his pulses, Dundee took the bunch of photographs which Lois Dunlop had willingly given him, and studied the picture that contained the entire cast, the picture which had first attracted Nita's attention and again despair overwhelmed him, for every one of his possible male suspects was in that group. But he could not keep his thoughts from racing on. Men who stepped out of their class and went on parties with chorus girls frequently did so under assumed names, he reflected. Serena Hart was authority for the information that Nita's had been a sudden marriage. 
Was it not entirely possible that the man who married Nita in 1918 had done so half-drunk, both on liquor and infatuation, and that he had not troubled to explain to Nita his motives for having used an assumed name or to write in his real name on the application for a marriage license? Had Nita's private detective journeyed out to Hamilton years ago in a fruitless attempt to locate Matthew Selim? Bonnie Dundee lay awake for hours Friday night, turning these and a hundred other questions over and over in his too active mind, and slept at last, only to awake Saturday, with a plan of procedure which he was sensible enough to realize promised small chance of success. And he was right. Not in Manhattan, or in any other of the boroughs of New York City, did he find any record of a marriage license issued to Juanita Lee and Matthew Selim. Not only was it entirely probable that Juanita Lee was a stage name, and that Nita had married conscientiously under her real name, but it was equally possible that the license had been secured in New Jersey or Connecticut. When he gave up his quest at noon Saturday, and returned to his hotel, Dundee bought at the newsstand a paper whose headline convinced him that Sergeant Turner was, at the moment, even more discouraged than himself for the big type told the world, Joe Savelli gets Brother Slayer. The smaller headlines informed the sensation-loving public, Swallowtail Sammy, Savelli's death avenged by brother who surrenders to police, Slick Thompson, alleged member of Sammy's gang, shot to death on 6th Avenue. Still smaller head type acknowledged that Joe Savelli, after giving himself up with a revolver in his hand, had disclaimed any knowledge of or connection with the murders of Juanita Lee Salim and Dexter Sprague. Two hours later, Dundee received a long telegram from District Attorney Sanderson. Informed by Evening Sun's Savelli Angle Complete Washout. Stop. Have you made any progress along other lines? Stop. Have informed reporters you working independently with strong chance of solving both cases? Stop. Would like you here for adjourned inquests on both murders Monday. Stop. Mother improved. Am on job again. Since Dundee felt there was little chance of following through either on the scandals which Gladys Earle had hinted at, or on Nita's strangely secret marriage of twelve years before, he immediately dispatched a wire to Sanderson, assuring him that vital progress had been made and that he would leave New York on the four o'clock train west, arriving at Hamilton Sunday morning at 8.50. The concluding sentence of the wire was, Suggest you pacify press with only vaguest of hints. Sanderson's wire, with its confession of an interview on Dundee's trip to New York, had upset him and left him with a cold, sick feeling of fear that, stumbling half in darkness, the district attorney had unwittingly warned the murderer of Nita Salim and Dexter Sprague that his special investigator was on the right track but he consoled himself with the hope that the final sentence of his answering telegram would prevent any further damage. But he was wrong. An hour before he reached his destination on Monday morning, he went into the dining car and found a copy of the Hamilton Morning News beside his plate, and on the front page was a photograph of dead Nita, her black hair in a French roll, her slim recumbent body clad in the royal blue velvet dress. Beneath the picture was the caption, which part does the outmoded royal blue velvet dress which Nita Salim chose as a shroud play in the solution of her murder? 
That is the question which Special Investigator Dundee, attached to the District Attorney's Office, who is due home this morning from fruitful detective work in New York, is undoubtedly prepared to answer. Dundee was still seething with futile rage when he climbed the stairs to his apartment. On the floor just inside his living room he found an envelope, unstamped and bearing his name in typing. The note inside, on a paper as plain as the envelope, was typed and unsigned. If Detective Dundee will consult page 410 of the latest Who's Who in America, he will find a tip which should aid him materially in solving the two murder cases which seem to be proving too difficult for his inexperience. A wry grin at his anonymous correspondent's unfriendly job was just twisting his lips when a double knock sounded at the living room door, which he had not completely closed. Come in, Belle. A morose, slack-mouthed mulatto girl in ancient felt slippers sidled into the room. Howdy, Mr. Dundee, Belle greeted him listlessly. You got back, like the papers said you would, didn't you? I ain't saying I ain't glad. That pet of yours show is God's own nuisance, nipping at my fingers and screeching his fool head off. Cause I ain't saying it's his fault keeping that young gentleman on the second floor awake last night. But like I say to Mr. Wilson, when he lets into me this morning, running off with the mouth cause I forgot to book Captain's cover on his cage last night. I ain't the onlyest one what forgets in this here house. Coming home, God knows when, leaving the front door unlocked the rest of the night. So's burglars and murderers and God knows who can walk right in here. Dundee, itching to consult his own copy of Who's Who, flung a glance at the parrot's cage, intending to pacify the mournful mulatto by scolding his Watson roundly, but he changed his mind and consoled the chambermaid instead. Just tell Mr. Wilson that for once he's wrong. You did not forget to cover Captain's cage, Belle. Look. The girl's dull eyes bulged as they took in the cage, completely swathed in a square of black silk. God's sake, Mr. Dundee, she ejaculated, I didn't put that cover on that bird's cage, and neither did Miss Bowen, cause she been laid up with the rheumatism ever since you left. Every last enduring thing on this old house has been left for me to do. Then I suppose the indignant Mr. Wilson came up and covered Captain himself, Dundee suggested, crossing the room to the bookcase which stood within reaching distance of his big leather-covered armchair. Him? Bell snorted. How he going to get in here with a no key? Sighs. He had told me if and Bell, how many times must I ask you not to misplace my things? Dundee cut in irritably, for he was tired of the conversation and angry that his copy of Who's Who was missing from its customary place in the bookcase. Me? I ain't touched none of your things, except to dust them and lay them down where I found them, Bell retorted mournfulness submerged in anger. Dundee looked about the room, then his eyes alighted upon the missing book, lying upon a shelf that extended across the top of an old-fashioned hot-air register, set high into the wall between the two windows. The thick red volume lay close against the wall, its gold-letter rib facing the room. "'Bell, tell me the truth, and I shall not be angry. Did you put that red book on that shelf?' Dundee asked, his voice steady and kindly in spite of his excitement. "'No, sir. I ain't touched it. 
and you did not put the cover over my parrot's cage, although I had tipped you well to feed Captain and cover him up at night, Dundee said severely. I got a heap of work to do, and you say that Mr. Wilson, one of the two young men on the second floor, left the front door unlocked when he came in last night, Dundee asked. Does he admit it? Yes, sir, Bell told him sulkily. He said he was tired when he got home long about midnight, and he clean forgot to turn the key in the door and shoot the boat. Thanks, Bell. That will be all now. And Dundee did a great deal to dispel the chambermaid's gloom by presenting her with a dollar bill. When she had gone, the detective read the note again, then looked at it and its envelope more closely. They had a strangely familiar look. Suddenly he jerked open a drawer of his desk on which his new noiseless typewriter stood, selected a sheet of plain white bond, and rolled it into the machine. Quickly he tapped out a copy of the strange, taunting message. Yes, the left-hand margin was identical. The typing and its degree of blackness were identical. And the paper on which he had made the copy was exactly the same as that on which the original had been written. The truth flashed into his mind. It was no coincidence that he had a copy of the very book to which his unknown correspondent referred him. For the note had been written in this very room, on the stationery conveniently at hand, on the noiseless typewriter which had been far more considerate about not betraying the intruder than the parrot whose slumbers had been disturbed. But why did my unknown friend risk arrest as a burglar if he wanted to give me an honest tip? Dundee remarked aloud to the parrot, who croaked in a reverent answer. Bad penny! Bad penny! I'm afraid, my dear Watson, that those words will not be so helpful in this case as they were when your mistress was murdered. Dundee assured his parrot absently, for he was studying the peculiar situation from every angle. Another question, Captain. Why to the unknown bother to take my who's who out of the bookcase where I should normally have looked for it and put it on that particular shelf. Warily, for his scalp was prickling with a premonition of danger, Dundee crossed the room to the shelf, but his hand did not reach out for the red book, which might have been expected to solve one problem at least. Why the shelf? he asked himself again. Why not the desktop? or the mantelpiece, or the smoking-table beside the big armchair. The shelf, with its drapery of rather fine old silk tapestry, offered no answer in itself, for it held nothing except the red book, a Chinese bowl, and a humidor of tobacco. And beneath the shelf was nothing but the old-fashioned register, the opening covered with a screwed-on metal screen, which was a mass of big holes to permit the escape of hot air when the furnace was going in the winter. Suddenly Dundee stooped and stared with eyes that were widened with excitement and a certain amount of horror. Then he rose, and standing far to one side, picked up the fat volume which lay on the shelf. As he expected, a bullet whizzed noiselessly across the room and buried itself in the plaster of the wall opposite, a bullet which would have plowed through his own heart if he had obeyed his first impulse and gone directly to the shelf to obey the instructions in the note. But more had happened than the whizzing flight of a bullet through one of the holes of the hot air register. The who's who had been jerked almost out of Dundee's hand before he had lifted the heavy volume many inches from the shelf. 
coincidental with the disappearance of a bit of white string which had been pinned to a thin page of the book was the metallic clatter, followed swiftly by the faint sound of a bump far below. Dropping who's who to the floor, Dundee flung open his living room door and raced down three flights of stairs. He brought up, panting, at the door of the basement. It was not locked, and in another minute he was standing before the big hot air furnace. Above the firebox was a big metal compartment, the reservoir for the heated air, and set into the reservoir to conduct the heat to the regions above were three huge pipes. With strength augmented by excitement, Dundee tugged and tore at one of the pipes until he had dislodged it. Then, thrusting his hand into the heat reservoir, he groped until he had found what he had known must be there. Judge Marshall's automatic, with the Maxim silencer screwed upon the end of its short nose. At last he held in his hands the weapon with which Nita Lee Salim and Dexter Sprague had been murdered. The ingeniousness of his own attempted murder moved him to such profound admiration that he could scarcely feel resentment. If, in the excitement of hunting for a promised clue, he had gone directly to the shelf, standing in front of the hole in the register into which the end of the silencer had been jammed, so that it showed scarcely at all, even to the eyes looking for it, he would now have been dead and the gun and the silencer, after hurtling down the big hot-air pipe behind the register, would have lain hidden for months, even years, in the heat reservoir of the furnace. With the weapon carefully wrapped in his handkerchief, Dundee went up the stairs almost as swiftly as he had gone down them, meeting no one on the way to his rooms on the top floor. "'My most heartfelt thanks to you, Captain,' he greeted his parrot. "'If you had not squawked last night and so frightened the murderer "'that he made the vital error of covering your cage, "'I would never have annoyed you again with my Sherlock ruminations "'on cases which do not interest you in the slightest.' "'The parrot cackled hoarsely, but Dundee paid him scant attention. "'He picked up the now harmless who's who and turned to page 410, "'a corner of which had disappeared with the string that was still fastened to the hair-trigger hammer of the Colt's thirty-two. Very clever and very simple, the murderer of two people and the would-be murderer of a third had had only to unscrew the metal covering of the register, wedge the end of the silencer into one of the many holes, replace the screws, and paste the end of the string drawn through another hole hidden by the tapestry, to a page of the book he had selected as the one most likely to appeal to a detective as a clue source. No, wait, he had had to do more. Dundee bent and examined the metal cover of the register. The circumference of the hole the murderer had chosen as the one which would be directly in front of Dundee's heart gleamed brightly. It had been necessary to enlarge it considerably. The murderer had left a trace after all. But the book was open in Dundee's hands, and his eyes rapidly scanned page 410. And he found what the murderer had not expected him to live to read, but which he had counted on as an explanation of the note which the police would have puzzled over if all had gone well with his scheme. End of chapter 26